and welcome you guys, Joshua Loya, aka Joshua the Jedi, uh, the aspiring servant warrior. This episode has been a long time in coming. I have with me uh, a man who I consider a friend, a uh, man who's been my pastor, and uh, first initially um, the grandmaster and uh, founder of the art that has influenced me the most. Uh, Grandmaster Sokashihan, Doctor JD, whatever uh, <laughs> Scott the Conway, man with a crazy resume. You know, I, it's so funny. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get into things. But I remember among I think I had been training with you about six years, and we took a class in NLP and hypnosis with Kevin Cole, who I do hope to get on the podcast eventually, um, and you know, technically we were peers in the class and it was three days before I felt comfortable calling you something else other than Soke, which was the martial arts title. I, I called you for all those years, mm-hmm. yeah, but welcome. I, I welcome. And thanks for showing up. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, I had my reminder earlier today about how absolutely insane my resume is when I had to fill out my bio for a summit that I'm on next week. <laughs> And I was like, okay, let's see. What did I put? Like 47 books, 33 programs, grandmaster, lawyer, real estate broker, PhD. I was like, that looks insane. What the heck? What well, and the thing is, is I know it's that? all true. <laughs> I, and, and, that's, and that's just it, though, is like, I know it's all true. It sounds like bragging to a lot of people's ears unless they realize, oh, this is accurate. He has written that many books. He has been doing this many things. Um, but you know, that's, that's the way that goes. Uh, so starting somewhere, um, Mm -hmm. how, because obviously you influenced my life on a whole bunch of levels, martial arts being the chief among them. How did you get started on that aspect of your life? Oh goodness. Well, martial arts was an easy one. I was six and, um, my mother, who is affectionately known as the Soke Mom, uh, took me at... Best hugs ever on the planet, by oh, the way. Oh, yeah. Took me to <laughs> the, the Dallas Street YMCA for my very first martial arts class when I was six. 1971, holding her hand, walking into the scary thing, and, and now here I am, uh, currently actually in transit, on my way to go uh, visit her. Uh, what am I at now? 49 years later, still doing martial arts. And and so, obviously, uh, Guardian Kempo, which is the art that you founded, um, and you are very quick to say that you had help in, in, uh, by more senior masters than you were at the time. By the way, just what what is that like, starting your own martial art? At what were you, like 23, 25 or something I, like that? I was 24. And uh, if I was 24 <laughs> and that smart and that good, um, that would be pretty impressive. But I was 24, decently smart, decently good. At that time, I had 18 years experience and uh, had extra help from four grandmasters that were helping me in those early days. Um, one grandmaster formed the basis of, of my training, and then three other grandmasters came alongside to help me build and organize. They taught me techniques from their art. They helped me sort through the techniques from my art, kind of semi-light, did a light veto on some things, and uh, 
helped me modify some others and filled in a whole bunch of gaps that I had. I'm curious, this is revelatory for me. Um, what were some of the things that were vetoed? Uh, Light as they might've been. Yeah. Well, let's see if you, well, we'll use it. Probably the Kleenex example was a defense against the full Nelson. That was a rake stomp, a, a move that I know you're familiar with, and then like snap both elbows down to break the grip behind the neck. So the light veto on that one came from Grandmaster Marks, who said, you know what, Scott, just so you know, that move is dangerously close to my old defense against the full Nelson. And he, sh- he explained the defense so I understood it. He says, now, here's the problem. It's a great defense when it works, but when it doesn't work, if someone's fingers don't uninterlace, what happens then? You know, cranks my neck. Yep. And in my case, it literally broke my neck. I woke up in the hospital doing a technique. Now, now he, with him, I think I remember you telling the story, if you wouldn't mind further elaborating, because I think it's a good story. Well, the short version with, with, with his, yeah, the short version with Grandmaster Marks is he would invite a black belt up to put him in the full Nelson, and he would tell him, "Don't let go, no matter what happens, don't let go." And th- the big motion in his technique was essentially a shoulder throw from the full Nelson. He would pin his elbows down to, to lock down their arms, and then pop his hip back as he dropped down, and then like launch them up and over one shoulder. And 999 times out of a thousand, they always let go. This one time he dropped down, popped his hip, threw the person over. He felt the sensation of them going over, heard something, and then woke up in the hospital. Because what had happened is the second degree black belt, being very, very obedient to the sixth degree black belt, (laughs) didn't let go. And it ended up snapping his neck. They had to fuse vertebrae in his neck. He couldn't turn his head to see behind him. He had to turn his body to look. Because he could only turn, turn his head enough to like see left and see right. He couldn't turn around and look behind him. And so when I showed him my technique, he says, okay, if they don't let go, what happens? He says, now at least because you're not throwing them over your shoulder, that probably won't break your neck. But A, you won't get out, and B, you're going to hurt your neck. Yep. And, and I remember our technique goes one, then the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, and so now it's stuff one, two. And, and when he taught me that, and essentially what the, the grandmasters were doing is they were teaching me things, and then they were evaluating my techniques, and they were offering me refinements. And, and that was one where you know, Grandmaster Marks just basically said, um, no. Let me explain why. Actually, let me ask you some questions. You'll figure out why. Because a lot of it was they weren't, they weren't building a system alongside me. They were training me in how to build the system. Yep. And because of that, you know, that they were trying to have me prepared to not have them look at every little thing. And then later on, um, Grandmaster Al Tahiro, affectionately known as Chief Al, and uh, Professor General, who is Grandmaster Julian General Lau, um, also came alongside, and they worked with me a lot in more of the latter years. And in between, Grandmaster Wally J, Grandmaster Waiming Chow, just Grandmaster after Grandmaster, lending some of their wisdom, lending some of their insights, offering some of the principles, helping me unpack and modify some of what I was doing and harmonize it better. It, it was enormously powerful to have 
masters of that caliber come alongside, look at your work and say, you're doing good stuff. Would you mind if I helped? Was that a humbling experience to have people of their caliber kind of come along and go, here you go. Um, humbling, humbling. Um, it certainly would be for me. Uh, but. Scary might be a good word for it. Okay. <laughs> scary, when, daunting. When, and the, the enormity probably wasn't lost on you, I'm sure. Yep. And, and in particular, because, you know, Guardian Kempo was the core style. Guardian Kempo, Kajuko Do is a sure. now. So when I have a Grandmaster Al Tahira of CHA3 Kempo, one of the original Hawaiian Kempos, and I have Grandmaster Julian General Lau of Kaju Kempo and um, yeah, Chinese Kempo Chuan Shu, uh, another Hawaiian style and Chinese style. And going, right. okay, I got these Kempo masters evaluating my Kempo, and they're going to talk to me about my philosophy and my principles, take a look at my work, and decide if they think it's worth calling it Kempo. And if they would feel honored to have my art standing alongside their art as a Kempo system. And when they took me outside with the arms folded doing the, the, the Hawaiian master glare thing. The glare that I assumed you would do with me. Well, we'll get into that it, like break with. <laughs> yeah, and and it, it's specifically designed to make you feel like you're doing something wrong on purpose. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you, you get used to it, but you, you kind of get used to it. Like drivers get used to having a police officer behind them. It's still that moment. Of, okay. Speed you're not entirely relaxed or comfortable. <laughs> so, like, make sure I yeah. signal, make sure I turn slowly. And, and it, it <laughs> that, that was a fun moment. And, um, yeah, when the two of them, and then later on, uh, Julian General out separately, and when I was receiving my, what would they test, seventh done, I think it was, um, it it was moving. Painful, physically painful, because they did an old school promotion and beat me up yeah, with a silk belt. Yeah, where, where they beat you with the, uh, <laughs> and that, you showed me that belt. It's not a thin belt. It's, it's pretty significant. Yeah, I, I can break boards with that belt. <laughs> And and so if I remember right, you I wasn't there for it, because um, uh, I think you were already a seventh degree black belt when I first started training with you. Uh, they b- essentially beat you with the belt or or smack you over the shoulders or something um, like that. Yeah, they put you in horse stance, arms outstretched to the side, and then they hit you in the legs, and they hit you in the arms, and they hit you in the torso, and then they elbow you, and they do that from the front and the back. And then he handed it off to the other master who did the same thing again. And, and it's almost like the, the goal and kind of part of the quote-unquote reward is if they can <laughs> bruise you through your heavy uniform, then, then you walk forward sort of with the, 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 the badge of honor of you know, your toughness because of your battle scars, so yep. to speak, from having gone through that. Well, and you kind of, and that was just the interesting thing. Um, so by the time, you know, Andrea and I, who, uh, which is, this is the, it's so weird. The <laughs> other day you said, you know, the art has had like, what, 30 plus years or something. And we've been with you for half of that history, which is so crazy to me. Um, you're kind of a bridge in many respects of the old school to the new school mm-hmm. um, in terms of, 
you, you challenge us. Uh, training you with was training with you was never easy. Um, scary on multiple <laughs> levels. Uh, but the way you would describe, especially you know, um, some of your earlier training in in Karaho and some of the other you know arts that you studied with, the way they would fix your stances. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, the, things the like that. Classic old school. Beat me with a shinai thing. A bamboo sword for those not in the martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember asking you, I think I was already a black belt. I don't think you would were agreeable to do it until after I was a black belt. But I asked you to hit me as hard. I still don't think you did. Uh, but hit me as hard in the leg with the bamboo, you know, with the shinai as much as you were. You know, I, I still had a bruise for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And I still don't think you hit me as hard as you when someone asked me to to hit them as hard as I've been hit, I, I will generally ease into that until I kind of see that that <laughs> wince of pain. Because honestly, now to the the credit of the old masters is when they would just beat the crap out of us when we were the senior belts. Is our, our body had years of being toughened, and right? So it when, wasn't like you took a like a fresh, unle, never calloused hand and just smashed it or whatever mm-hmm. so so there there's a tolerance built up for it where i can take a harder hit than i would do to someone because i've been hit so many times but there's a right. downside to getting hit is that you lose the the skin sensitivity was it chief al that you said that or was it another master that said he couldn't feel his grandson in his hands yeah or yeah, something, yeah. Or was, or chief al and i were having a discussion and i at least if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure it was Chief Al, um, had just been holding his uh, grandkid and had touched his grandchild's face. And um, and then later on, we were talking about like his hands, because he has these crazy hands. And he was mentioning, yeah, there's some arthritis. In Tree them. trunks, right? <laughs> yep. And it's like, and yeah, I make a fist, I punch you, you're going to know you were punched. Says, but when I, you just saw me touch my granddaughter's face, I do that so that she feels my touch. I can't feel her face. And I remember and that, that moment. Goes thinking, back to the trade-off. Mm-hmm. And and the and the big trade-off is, is you know it's one of those if you grow up in a dangerous world where fighting is necessary, then it makes sense to train that way because you sure. need fighting power, fighting skill, fighting toughness, and you need it fast because you, you're not going to make it the next five, ten, thirty years without it. But if you well, and make, for some of the masters, I'm sorry, uh, some of the masters you trained with, they did grow up in fairly rough areas of Hawaii, at least a couple of them, uh, I recall, right? They did. Several of the masters I trained with, uh, the grandmasters and, and the lower-ranked masters, I mean, back in the day, if you were a teenage boy, you knew you were not going to make it to your mid-20s without having to fight. And they also yep. knew if you didn't stand your ground and at least give it a go, that you were never going to have the respect of the locals, and that would but that would follow you for the rest of your life. It, it's... It was the street equivalent of a dishonorable discharge from the military. And, you know, thankfully that's not something you had to deal with too much. I mean, growing up in, you know, San Diego in the you know 60s and 70s and, you know, I guess early 80s, so to speak. Not as much. Nope, not, not nearly so. My... You know, aside from the occasional death threat and the bullying and, you know, the, I remember the three kids chasing I love how casually he's like, oh, the occasional death threat. Yeah, well, 
Yeah, it, it kind of made me immune to death threats. So when I started getting them on just such a crazy regular basis in my 20s, I could just ignore them, go on. And you actually did kind of receive a little bit of ire when you stepped out on your own, as much as you ultimately had help. You had a, f- a fair number of people that were not particularly pleased with you going out and doing your own thing. Uh, dramatically so, yes. Um, and, you know, to, to my knowledge, uh, obviously, I know more of the story, but um, what was the, the underlying impulse behind doing Guardian Kempo as opposed to finding another art? to study instead of the previous system you were in? Well, part of it began with a horrific mistake. It was wanting to build the art I wanted to learn. And that required kind of making things a lot more expansive, a lot deeper. I wanted a lifestyle martial art, almost the kind of thing you might expect to learn if you were like growing up in a monastery, something that covered spirit and yeah. soul and heart, as well as the body and the effective defense and something that was philosophical and relational and that all of the principles were fully integrated with you know, faith and culture and all of that. And um, now, now here's why I say that was a horrific mistake, is just the fact that I've been doing martial arts so long, if you consider I was 24 when I started, and, and e- even if you ignore the fact I had so much help, already I have 18 years of martial arts experience. So... I'm already thinking like someone who has 18 years of martial arts experience. Well, right. maybe one in 10,000 people stick around that long. So I'm building an art that one in 10,000 people are going to go, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And um, probably 900 people are going, what the heck? And that the roughly 100 in between are going, well, this is kind of cool, but I don't know if I want to do all of it. And it was like years later, again, with the help of uh, some other masters that we started to break out some rotating curriculum and some of the fundamentals. And that's what led to Guardian Karate, Guardian Jiu-Jitsu, and Guardian Kobujitsu as sort of predicate arts, the breakout pieces of it. And then you move on to Kempo. Yep. But it, it, it was one of the, the, the curious things with it. There was a thing I wanted to know that I wanted to study. And at least local to where I was in San Diego is that I couldn't find it. But yeah, and when you consider the fact that I knew several masters and even some grandmasters back then, I couldn't find that thing I was looking for. But when I started to build the thing I was looking for, other masters started to show up. And some of the, the stuff I found most ironic is my biggest opposition was coming out of the Christian community. And some of my biggest support was coming out of the, the Buddhist martial arts community and the Shinto martial arts community and the Taoist martial arts community. And you had community. a decidedly Christian foundation to Guardian Kempo in terms mm-hmm. of to the extent that it explored spirituality. And yet the non-Christian uh, for, you know, the, like you said, they were your bigger supporters. Yeah. What do you think that, wh- why do you think that was that they were so supportive of that? Well, uh, grandmaster Wai Ming Chow and, um, his, his sister and inheritor now, uh, grandmaster Peggy Chow explained it this way. They said in classic Chinese martial arts, it's very spiritual, 
and that the character of the person is considered so critical. And in their art in particular, you historically had to be a monastic to learn the art. That if, if you weren't a, a Buddhist monk, they didn't want to teach you. And it was only because of the evolution of society and then the rarity of the monastics and such that they ultimately dropped that. But it's, it's sure. very spiritual because we're teaching deadly skills. And that the biggest challenge they had with Western martial arts is they had dispensed with the spirituality and it was all about physical technique. And that what they were seeing was the training of a lot of incredibly skilled fighters that didn't have a strong spiritual foundation. And the worst side of it they saw it was the incredibly skilled fighters that were anti-spiritual in their approach were the ones that particularly troubled them. Because they were the ones that, that they concern some people that if you put power in the hands of someone with no code, you don't know what they're going to do with that. Mm-hmm. And at least to the extent that this incredible fighting power is it's in the octagon, it's in the ring, it's on the mat, there's um, a code of sportsmanship that governs some of that. But where it's the... You know, right. There's take, there's take sort no of prisoners. a context yeah. or what have you. Yeah. And and, th- and that that concerned them. And they were appreciative to see a Westerner, despite my Eastern roots, re-inject Western spirituality into an art for Westerners. And that even though they were Buddhists, they really appreciated seeing the way this Christian martial art harmonized that it wasn't just here's the physical technique and here's the Sunday school part. And let's just do them at the same time where they really saw the, which is something that I've, yeah, I've witnessed that in my interaction with other Christian martial artists where it's sort of like a, like a tack on afterthought. Mm -hmm. The, 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 you know, that you were saying kind of like the, the Sunday school karate, I think is a term that either you or somebody has used previously Mm -hmm. where it's sort of like, you know, Taekwondo on Tuesdays and Bible study on Wednesdays, <laughs> or yeah. you know, not to pick fun at, at Taekwondo uh, stylists, of course. But yeah, well, and in particular, it, it's like a channel change where they may or may not be related. And you even see this sometimes in some people that uh, train in kind of a quasi MMA, where they do BJJ on the mat and they may do a Muay Thai standing up. But there's like this channel change, like, oh, I'm on the ground. Now I completely switch styles. Now I move completely yep. differently. And th- there's almost a sense of completely forgetting, okay, y- y- there's a whole other half of your training. And even though now you're on the ground, about half of what you knew standing up is still applicable here, w- which was most evident. Uh, I, I, even see it yeah. a- I even see it across grappling styles as between closely related styles like judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu where – there's they don't integrate it very rarely do i see somebody who has integrated both of those two together even with as closely related as those two arts are yep. even more dramatically i'm sure that like you're saying yeah and, and and that that channel change it it's helpful to condition reflexes but the, sure. the downside is then you're leaving out a whole bunch of what you could be working with and then in particular and, too it's uh, who, who was that? Just having a conversation with someone about like our training conversations, which I say is exactly the same as my discussion debate conversations. 
Because mm-hmm. we, we were having a theological discussion slash debate slash she was she confessed that yeah I'm being a little bratty about it but <laughs> but I said like now here's the the conversation I'm having with you so that you know I'm paying attention I know my proper place in this conversation and as much power as I have on the, the authority on the subject I will control myself remember we are partners not opponents I don't want to fight but I'm ready to engage. And when we wrap up to know I'm paying attention, I try to be humble about how I came to you and and control my power because we're partners, not opponents, and I'm sorry if I hurt you, and I forgive you if you hurt me. And she's like, well, that's a really good approach to this. Yep, and that is our sparring protocol. Every time we have a sparring (laughs) match, it's attention, bow, fighting, stance, and then it's attention, bow, embrace. And that's the whole conversation we have, and I want my art to reflect life so that it's a life art that if you master the physical principles that we're doing if you master the conversations of protocol you master the the sense of like well one simple concept of makoto the sincerity that do it like you mean it and if you're going to do it do it if you you're not going to do it well then don't do it but when you do it do it like you meant to do it that that physical technique and, you know, then applies to like, husbands and wives, parents with children, applies at work. That yep. we're training in the dojo, the, the dojo, the way place, the place where the way is practiced, the place you go to practice being your best you. And that you walk in and you pause and you prepare and that's the, the bow and then you proceed and you step onto the mat. Now you practice being your best you. And then when you step off the mat, you pause again and you bow to the mat and that's the mentally prepared. Now you're going to proceed out and continue to practice what you've been learning on the mat as it applies to -to day-to-day living. And to me, that is enormously powerful, which also means I want to make sure what we do on the mat, what we do in the art reflects the way we want to live life. And, you know, it's interesting too, um, you and I have talked about, um, sort of that conditioned response that the, you know, whether there are explicit principles, you know, that are taught or that are directly, um, explored in depth, you know, and obviously, you know, particularly biased, you know, cause guardian Kempo is <laughs> art that I have the most familiar yeah, with. Yeah. When you've done something with. for 15 years, you might have an affinity for it. Sure. Um, we, you know, we talked about there's a there's several masters that you and I know and other martial artists that we know that have a very effective fighting system uh, that is directly in conflict with how they want to live their life mm-hmm. with their family, with their spouses, and um, you know, they have to find a way of integrating that, and it's a harder integration process than an art that was built from the ground up to be able to be transferable to outside contexts. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's certainly a steeper hill to climb. Yeah, it, it mandates the channel change. And I can totally relate to the channel change because I often had to do that as a lawyer, where I have to like turn off the lawyer, like take, take off the lawyer like it's a uniform, stick it in the trunk of the car, put on husband, put on father, and then walk in the house. And you know the the way a lot of people train, you know the 
no mercy to the enemy type thing since, since I haven't actually yeah. seen the new Cobra Kai show, but just remember. I, I, I really, one. I know you're not a big entertainment guy, especially mm-hmm. since you've been working so hard on some of your new projects. Hundred percent recommend it. It's <laughs> it's very easy to watch. Um, well, and I, still, I will tell you, if I get access to television and want to watch a show, that's right up there near the top of the list of something to watch. Good deal. Good deal. Um, but you're right though. You, you, you and, and in fact, the reason I, I even think about this without spoiling it for people who are listening, cause I know you particularly don't care that much about spoilers that, um, that Johnny Lawrence, who's sort of the, the, you know, Cobra Kai, uh, I guess main, main person, he is trying to reconcile how he was taught karate by his, you know, very like you know, old school, almost too much sensei and trying to find a way to actually genuinely help his students. And that, that, you know, I talk about when I watch that show, it makes me want to be a better sensei. It's, you know, he's clearly has a bunch of lessons that he's in, he's kind of learned wrong or that he's finding aren't particularly functional for living life day to day. He's trying to find a way of modifying them so that he doesn't have to lose um, rapport with his students, but kind of fix his own mistakes of things that he taught that he was, you know, things he learned when he was their age. And he realizes, wait, that's actually mm-hmm. having a negative impact. Let me fix this before it goes too wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not a clean thing, but you know, that's, that's always that, that tricky part is, and that, that was the scary thing when, you know, in guardian Kempo, we were um, very much on, titles of responsibility it's not like oh well now i'm the sensei and bow to your sensei like the whole Napoleon dynamite thing um it it's it's scary to think about the weighty responsibility of you know i i think uh i think master donald from uh from doc's karate i think he said when he was young he thought black belts were masters and that masters could fly and it's sort of that realizing the the impact that you have. We have students now, Andrea and I only have a handful because we're trying to be, you know, just crazy as the world is. They've only ever known us as Sensei Joshua or Sensei Andrea and realizing mm-hmm. the weight of the words that we speak, even the offhanded comments. Oh, oh, that makes a difference. If I say that wrong, this this kid is going to take that as, you know, grand, infinite knowledge from the master that can fly. <laughs> Um, it's it, kind of sobering. <laughs> yep. Well, and in fact, he, here's like the perspective check for uh, you and Sensei Andrea is think about your decade and a half of experience. Sure. Think about the two wrenches you got to train with. The two of you have more years in now than they had when you met them. When you were the white, advanced white and yellow belt training with them, they had only been training since 1993. They had about 13 years experience. So you were purple belt when they hit the year's training mark that you're at now. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you kind of, you were over here a couple weeks ago before you, you started heading east and we had that conversation. It was, it was sort of a, a bit of a mind mind tweak. Uh, <laughs> so, 
Um, and, and it is funny that honestly, me as a grandmaster, I feel so incompetent relative to, to what I thought grandmasters were going to be like before I was one. It reminds me of something that to my mother said when she was turning 70 some years back. That we were chatting and she says, you know what? 70, when I was young, 70 sounded so old. And, and now I'm turning <laughs> 70. And it still sounds old, but I don't feel old. Well, it's kind of like that for me yeah. and grandmasters. Like, you know, when I was a black belt, like, I used to think, oh, you know, the grandmasters, they, they really know what they're doing. They, they've got it nailed. And then as I become a grandmaster, I go, okay, when does this having it nailed part come? <laughs> but here I am, I'm coming up on 50 years in martial arts and going, is, is, is the, the done feeling show up somewhere? Because I feel like I still have so much to learn and so much to do. And it's funny. Well, I, I tell people all the time who are telling me that, you know, like I have students right now, you know, um, you know, telling me, man, I, I thought I'd be better by now. You know, when I, and the thing is, is I felt like I was a first degree black belt about the day that you promoted me to second degree black belt. <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. as far as that goes, um, well, and then I had the joy of doing like the, the, the standard wrenchy challenge with the two of you, the second to last time I saw you of the, let's go all the way back to the brand new white belt thing of line one and let's teach you some stuff that masters can That somebody could learn with. on their very first day and <laughs> we're still kind of, you know, that's, and that, that is the thing is being challenged on subtleties of something that you would have learned, you know, uh, your very first day in, in the dojo. Um, speaking of, of impressions though, you're talking about the Hawaiian stare, oh. the, you know, the, the, the disapproving master or, 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 or sort of, I, I don't know how you would put that, but you know, that sort of intimidating gaze, if you will. And I had that impression. Of, I, I knew of you, you know, a couple of years <laughs> before I, I finally trained with you, um, and I, you know, I'd read a couple articles and I was at, at my, at the time that I started training with you, I was really trying hard to integrate, find a way to integrate my faith and my desire to train in the martial arts. And, uh, you know, I, I had this thought of like, okay, you know, I, I know he's, at least his, his mother's Japanese and he's, he's, you know, he's, you know, has all this, this, you know, black belts and like six other styles besides his own. And, and, you know, um, intimidating and, and stuff. And, and I was probably not quite a year in, I, I don't think I was quite yet a, an orange belt. I was like a fancy yellow belt or something. Um, and I just assumed, well, you know, of course it's like, get yes, sir. Like uh, no, sir. And there were probably about four or five people hanging out at the dojo after class. And out of nowhere, you pull the, living color three snaps and Z formation. And I like what? And, and it was sort of the, that sort of double take of, I don't know how to process this. Yep. Oh, he's a real human being. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. what, what, you know, ultimately is what all of it boils down to is I may have been training in martial arts. It'll be, you know, 50 years next year, half a century. And certainly my entire adult life. But the, the intrinsic humanity of every single one of us is just so important from 
the four-year-old white belt who can't remember which direction an upward lot goes. And <laughs> we go, I, I laugh because we have <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. And just his intrinsic yeah. value as a human being, and then me, you know, 50 some odd years later, it's that same intrinsic value as a human being. And that ultimately, I am not my, my martial arts. I mean, what, what happens if I get put in a wheelchair? I can't physically do it anymore. Sure. I'm no less me. I just lost my physical ability to perform. What if I get dementia, Alzheimer's? I can't even remember any of it. Is I still have intrinsic value as a person. And one of the keys for all of us with everybody, it's the, it's the Ohana principle. In fact, that's even part of when, when the stern master stands in front of me with the arms folded and they're glaring at me like, who the heck do you think you are to start your own style? What gives you the right to leave your grandmaster? And, and that's kind of how it began is, they can do that without damaging the relationship because they're ohana, because they're right. not just the role, they're a person, there's a relationship, there's a, a connection there where you can tell they're, they're doing it with the stern authority, but they're doing it like you know the, the uncle or the father that is taking the kid aside and, and basically wants to know, do you think you know what you're doing? You, you tell me what you think you're doing. And let's discuss this. And it's that kind of paternalistic relationship where it's not just, you know, I'm here to tell you that you're garbage and, and you'll always be scum. And that I, I'm here because my goal is for you to be better. You are my ohana. And I am unwilling for you to be second rate. And that's kind of how that comes off. When you do it from that, that Hawaiian relationship standpoint. For those not connected to Hawaiian culture, either through the martial arts or surfing, as I have been fortunate enough to come at the whole Ohana thing from a couple of different angles now, I mean, you kind of gave a glimpse um, into that. How does how does somebody kind of live that out who who kind of wants to to grasp it because? It, a lot of people seen Lilo and Stitch. They get the whole, you know, family, like, me, you know, Hanuman's means family and family and family. It means no one gets left behind. It's so cool that kids can get that, mm-hmm. you know, at a pretty young age. But um, it's it's staggering to me, though. Um, my my limited experience in the entertainment industry, um, primarily as a musician, not I haven't gotten deep enough into comedy to see that, but I see that a little bit. Um, how many people don't grasp that aspect of things? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, one of the things that, w- honestly, the big reason I wanted to have you on, aside from the fact that, okay, it's cool to have the grandmaster I've studied with the most <laughs> on anyway, is you're going out of your way to kind of unpack the ideal and very real um, way of living of Ohana for people who maybe didn't grow up with it you know, who don't understand what that's like from just an experiential level. And you're kind of teaching that to them in a very proactive way. Mm -hmm. Um, How would, how would you encapsulate that for somebody who's in the uninitiated maybe? Well, part of the way I teach Ohana is I'll I'll unpack it to an acronym, but first we have the, the basics of Ohana means family. And what I'll call Ohana 101 is the, the hero, villain, victim, dyad or triad. 
where when you have a problem with someone, do you come at the problem like the person is the villain? So like if I'm married and I have a, a disagreement with my wife, do I treat them like they're the bad guy? They're the ones making it worse. This is all their fault. Uh, or do I treat them like they're the hero? They, they want to make it better. I'm recruiting them to make it better. So the problem is the villain. And you know, the victim is the one for whom it is made worse. And so just the, you know, Ohana 101 is like, okay, just treat people like they are the solution. Even if the problem shows up through them, just assume that people in general don't like problems. And give them an option between collaborating to make the problem worse or working to make the problem worse or collaborating to make the problem better. They'd rather make the problem better. Now, that's not going to be 100%. But you're going to get a lot more mileage out of that presumption. And, and say especially like if you and I have an argument and sure. we, we've got two hours to talk about it and resolve it before we have to go somewhere else. And I spend the first hour trying to convince you you're the villain. And suppose I succeed. Good. It's like, good. Now you know you're the villain. So now I want you to be the hero. Well, there should be some whiplash. Part. Go, what, was the, what was that whole last hour about? Like, what, <laughs> why did you fight to assign me this role, the job of villain? And now you're saying, good. Now I want to fire you from the job I just spent an hour arguing you into. And I want you to do this other thing. I mean, th there would be. I've been on the receiving of that multiple times. <laughs> I can experience. Yeah. <laughs> Not from you, but from from uh, less well-adjusted people, I guess, yeah. for lack of a better term. Well, or from, from normal people, honestly. It, it, <laughs> I mean, it's so common as to be considered weird when someone comes to you. Like if I come to you and say, okay, Joshua, this is a problem. I would like your help solving it. A, a lot of times there's this reaction of, of like you brace for it. But it's like, Wait, what? Or, wait, or you, oh, you just want help solving it. Did you want to yell at me? For, no, no yelling, no judging, no I'm bad. You just want to solve the problem and you want my help. You want to know how you can help. After you get done being confused, then you're relieved and grateful and we'll solve the problem. But it's gotten so commonplace that we forget who our partners are and we forget who our opponents are. And we treat partners like opponents. We forget that the Ohana spirit is we... Are we? There's an us here. We're family. We are part of, of the human family. We are part of the local family. That we are here to work together. We are here jointly to make it better. And then there's the acronym of Ohana, Oasis, Harmony, Assertiveness, Nobility, and Aloha. And Oasis is be a refreshing refuge. Be someone people can like drop their guard around that they can be more honest with, more vulnerable with it. They don't always have to like second guess what you're really after and second guess what you, you're really up to. And, and when they're like, well, what, what does he really mean by that? And harmony of just the fact that we're going to be different and that's okay. And if none of us were different, that would be a problem. I mean, even like this, this theological discussion slash debate slash her being bratty things that I'm dealing with, is it has been so long since I've had that combination of someone who really wanted answers. And so they're really willing to stay engaged, but boy, do they have decades of baggage heaped on them from their previous mm -hmm. church experience and experience with the, the kind of Christian that is the one that gets in your face. And then, you know, th th those aren't, aren't the bulk of Christians, but 
they're the ones that are often encountered. They get, they're the ones that are getting the media attention. That's yep. certainly the case. Yeah. And then assertiveness is moving forward on purpose with respect for others and for people that are so used to being aggressive and look out for number one and, and just being the, 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 the domineering jerk and thinking that's leadership. That the, the idea of define your forward, okay, good, define your purpose and be intentional, and then show respect for others. And sometimes that's bewildering to people. I, I, it ought not be, but for some percentage of people, that's where they struggle. And then there's no Probably because it's, it, it's normal. Yeah, <laughs> normal yeah. is not necessarily healthy. <laughs> yep. And then there's no nobility. Be your highest and best self. And you know what's your code and what's your leadership and, and how do you show up and how do you represent? And, and if the perception of who you are was based on how you show up, one, is it good? And then two, is it true? And, and so often there, there's people that show up and say, well, you, know, you just have to really get to know me because outside this hard exterior, I really am a great guy. Listen, like, oh, so you're you're a jerk on the outside, but you claim you're nice on the inside, and you wonder why people don't stick around through the jerk to find the nice guy when there's actual nice people out there. And and the last one is aloha. That's another Hawaiian word. And that word means love. It's part of the aloha spirit. They they say hello and they say farewell using aloha. And uh Aloha as love is I want the best for you. I want to be the best for you. I want you to have transcendent joy. And when you kind of take Oasis and the Aloha is kind of the bookends in there and that sense of family and that sense of connection and that sense of, of, of we, that sense of us, that it's not my way or the highway, even as the grandmaster of the art, I'm still attentive to the needs of the students. And still responsive, even to the kids. And I offer the kids opportunities to lead me, not just, you know, lead basic form and I'll follow you, but that they know they can come ask, oh, can we do this? And, and that's, that's leadership. You're trying to be an influence. Sure. You have this decision you made in your head. You're trying to implement your decision. And they just know they have to go through me to do it. And kind of that philosophy of, the answer is always yes, unless there's a good reason for it to be no. And if they make a request, I'll say, can I say yes to this right now? And, then, and here's a key that I also do along these lines is, if I can't do it now, but I think I can do it in the next class or the class after, I won't say, oh, not this time, but next week. We'll definitely do that next week. Well, because now I have to remember What right. I might say yeah. is, well, not And then this you week. forget, and then they, then they learn... Yeah, because yeah, then that, that feels yeah. like a broken promise. But if I tell them, well, not this week, but maybe next week, you can ask me again next week. Now, <laughs> no, I don't have to remember anything. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's funny, though, like little things like that make a difference. Too. You know, like I, I, I find it really curious how um, and I've now since having been in leadership and been responsible for students who some of whom you actually haven't even met, uh, which is so <laughs> weird to me, um, uh, is thinking about the consequence of my words. So, you know, thinking about the whole, you know, if they're looking at me like this master that can fly, um, 
you know, thinking about, well, let me make sure that I'm not setting them up to be disappointed in me, setting them up to think that they're not valuable, mm-hmm. you know, setting them up to, to think that, uh, they're an inconvenience. And, you know, it's sometimes just the simple thing of like, you're, you're really big on following through on your promises. And this was the kind of the curious thing. I remember, um, we had just gotten our car that we have now, and there was a, a thing with the window and, <laughs> and, and you had said, Oh, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. And you were anticipating, Oh, it'll be like a hundred dollars. I can afford to take care of that for them. It ended up being like almost $500, but because you said you would do it, you did it. Now, if you're unsure, if you had in any inkling that, you know, I mean, you might've still said you would take care of it, but, um, you would have thought through it further. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really cool is that you'll say, I intend to do it by, you know, whatever day, or I intend to do this thing. Um, then you're, you're speaking truthfully, you know, and, and, you know, when you say, oh, I hope we get to do this thing, you make it really, there's a, a very, very real meaning behind hope of, well, I think this is possible and I have a reasonable expectation that this could happen, but I don't know all the details, you know, like, I think one of the things that, um, we live in a world where we're used to hyperbole coming from whether it's the president or whether it's, you know, celebrity, this or a or B and we treat the hyperbole as if they're actually saying that. And we don't think to check in about our own version of that, where we say the thing and we don't realize that not everybody's going to know that we were speaking hyperbolically maybe we should think through context and setting and our audience and all that kind of stuff. Um, you, you know, and, and so that intentionality, I think, uh, and maybe it's the lawyer in you. Does you think that, <laughs> that perhaps has, has kept you from saying things that kind of trap yourself later? Well, uh, certainly there is that part of, as a lawyer, there's a contract. You know, there's offer, there's acceptance, there's consideration. If I, if I say we're going to Disneyland and the kid says, cool, I'm going to Disneyland, um, that's most of a contract. I mean, that's like potentially legally enforceable in the court of law. We just need a, a peppercorn of consideration. Uh, uh, that's kind of a legal term of basically any exchange of value, no matter how small, transforms a promise into a contract. So that does make me probably more careful than most in my use of language because words mean things and words have legal consequence for that. But even just on a personal level, when you look at like the impact of chosen words with children from parents, mm-hmm. uh, I, I remember my father drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette when I was a kid. And, and I came over and asked if, if I could try. And he said no. Now, if he had just said, no, this is really bad for you, you shouldn't do this. Okay, well, now he's walking in contradiction with what he just said. But what he said is like, this is a grown-up thing. It's not healthy for you, so kids don't get to do it, and the law says that you don't get to choose. But when you're old enough, you'll be able to choose for yourself. Okay, well, he was old enough, and he chose, so now he's actually explaining an example he's actually being instead of 
saying things opposite what he does. Yeah. And, and, and that's some of the power of the words. And here I am, I'm 54, turning 55 in 10 days. And I still remember when I was 19 and my father said, Scott, you're not much of a man. And I can't help you because I never figured it out. You're smart. You'll have to figure it out. Well, when you think about it, okay, that was 45 years ago. I still remember those words. That had to have been a difficult thing to hear. It, it was. It, it kind of happened in uh, three phases. First, I was mad that he said it. And, and then I thought, I was like, okay, well, who else is going to say that to me but my father? Because I was thinking, like, you know, if, if uh, okay, well, no, there is no if so-and-so said it. Okay, yeah, I, I guess he, he was, if, if it was <laughs> going to be said, he was the best one to have said that. Uh, and then the next thing was, well, well, well is that true? Uh, well, I, okay, actually, he does have a point, which is why he said it. And then the third thing, and this is the one that hung out with me, said, wait a minute, you haven't figured, I'm 19, you're 22 years older than me. What do you mean you haven't figured it out and I have to figure it out? And, and ultimately, that was my takeaway. But it, it really was one of those you know, things where you know, he made a determination, like, I think, Scott need, I think it's true, and I think Scott needs to hear it. I don't want to be the one to say it to him, but who else is going to say it to him? And so he said it to me. And I will tell you, I would bet you, I mean, I never had the conversation with him, but I would bet you the hardest part of that conversation wasn't, Scott, you're not much of a man. I would bet the hardest part of that conversation was, I can't help you. I never figured it out. Because to be, you know, a, a 40, well, what would he have been at that time? 43, 44, somewhere yeah. in there. To have to admit to your 19-year-old son, I don't know what it means to be a man. Has got to be hard. But he knew he was dying. So he knew, it's like, and, and I'm out of time. I don't have time to figure it out. But my son needs to know. And he needs to know, whatever it is, you're not doing it. And yet you have to figure this out. Well, and it speaks to the consistency of your, of your father of, you know, I, I see a common thread between that conversation and him giving you his explanation on smoking and drinking mm -hmm. is he wanted to be, he didn't want to give you an incomplete picture if he could help to the extent that he could help. Cause you know, if he just, never explained why you couldn't have a beer or, or a cigarette or, or what have you, you know, who knows where you would have gone with that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you're not opposed to drinking, but you largely don't drink. I mean, it, um, I still need to have master Abbott's uh, beer someday <laughs> if I ever make it my way to Arizona. Um, but, uh, it, you know, he explained it and then, you know, he knew that he couldn't, um, he needed to tell you that you weren't, you know, the man that he, what, you know, however he put it, the, you know, you're not much of a man. And I, my suspicion, um, based on all of the stories that I've heard from you and a handful of things I've, um, actually, I'm trying to think if Soke and mom ever spoke directly about him, but to the, whatever extent I know anything about your father, that he wanted to make sure that you didn't just kind of follow his example without an explanation that this isn't the complete picture of what you need. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it, yeah, that's that speaks to his character, I think. Yeah, a lot of it it was the it was this the sensei mentality. Be the example, explain the example you're being. Walk a path and explain the path you're walking. And importantly, and both of my parents were always good at this, is when you deviate from how the path ought to be walked, explain that too. Yeah. Because when your kids see you being a bad example, and my father even told me when I was younger that that he hopes that I, he doesn't mind if I drink, but he's very concerned about the smoking because he's quit smoking, he's quitting smoking as easy <laughs> I've done it hundreds of times. And it's because it gets you yeah. hooked. Like if, if you're a casual drinker, you're fine. If you become an alcoholic, you have a problem. And, so, and when you're older, you can make a choice. And the smartest choice is to never smoke. And if you ever drink, to drink in moderation. Don't be getting drunk. Because if you get drunk, you make stupid decisions. And, and somebody would use some of his own stupid decisions as the examples of, like, these are some of the dumb things I've done when I was drunk. If I was sober, I would have known better. But you, you get two beers past the line, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. And sober Gary <laughs> looks at that and goes, my God, man, what were you thinking? And so, you know, it's... You know, be the example, explain the example you're being. When you're the warning, be willing to admit the warning. And when you do the warning in front of someone, be willing to apologize for it. Both yeah. of my parents had apologized to me during the course of my life when they did something that they knew violated the values and, that I lived by and, and that, <laughs> that they tried to raise me in. And they're going, dang it, I just did that again, Scott. I'm so sorry. One of the things that, um, man, I feel like you, we'd need like hours and hours, but, um, one of the other things that struck me that you mentioned fairly early on, um, is the distinction between identity and behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I've, I've told this story to other people and they were originally, uh, or initially offended at this, but you know, the, the story you told me is you did something. I don't even know what the specific thing you did wrong was when you were a kid. Yeah. yeah, I, I was that, a kid. There were, I'm sure there was plenty of examples. <laughs> <laughs> what was, was why would a smart kid like you do such a stupid thing? Mm -hmm. Was the thing that, that Sokemon went out of her way to say, to make the distinction between your identity, your, you know, whole awareness of being as being a smart kid, you know, a kid that does smart things, making a contrast between that and the mistake you made. Because mm -hmm. I, I see this all the time um, where, you know, uh, like, don't be stupid, you moron. You know, mm -hmm. like, well, what, what do you expect me to be? <laughs> yeah. Well and, well, and some of that goes back to like the whole hero, villain, victim thing is if I win the villain argument, well, I'm going to get more villain behavior. If, if my mother had gone and like, oh, you're, you did a stupid thing, you stupid kid, you know, a, a reasonably intelligent brain is going to go like, stupid kid, stupid thing. I don't see why you're confused. And the thing like, all right, you just spent an hour arguing I'm the villain. I did something that made it worse. I don't see why you're confused. Like, I did exactly like you said who you think I am, and that's exactly how I'm behaving. I don't get why you're confused. And and, and going back to that that hero villain victim thing is you you go out of your way 
um, and this is something I've, even after training with you as many years <laughs> as I have, but I've been going out of my way more intentionally, imperfectly, I'm sure, to think about, well, what kind of partner do I want to have? Am I going to make my wife the bad person in this? Or am I going to treat her like she's the epic warrior princess that she is so that we can fight this problem together? You know, that's that's going to have way more epic uh, you know, results on the far end of this. Um, and I, I think maybe it's it comes back to just um, I'm willing to fight, but I don't want to have to. Mm-hmm. And you know that that's that's the thing is that I, I and I see that because um, I I did want to get your take on on some of the the craziness without getting into the unnecessarily divisive specifics of our modern culture, but um, you know. Uh, something that our, our friend Kevin Cole posted on Facebook mm-hmm. recently is that a picture that somebody described. I don't remember what the the specific picture was, but essentially, you know, we want to fight with each other like all the time. doesn't matter what the thing is. doesn't matter. It, you know, um, I get my new source from, from a, you get your new, your new source from B both have their extreme angles on it. And neither of us actually gets the truth of what happened, but we're both furious and want to fight with each other because they don't because we don't agree with each other. Because mm-hmm. um, you're wrong, yeah. you're bad. My side's right, your side's bad. My side will save the country, your side will destroy the country. And just drop that outline on either side, and you're eighty percent right in what they're going to say. And um, it's I, I see glimpses of a couple of people. Maybe it's just the fact that I choose to to limit where I get my information or my punditry from, I see glimpses of, of a handful of people kind of going, Hey, wait a minute. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. Let, let's, let's try to find some common ground and solution. We don't have to agree on the specifics, but let's try to find something that's going to actually make this better. Um, what's your, your hot take for lack of a better <laughs> way to describe it on, on kind of the wildly divisive society we find ourselves in, certainly in the U.S., if not the world. Well, well, certainly one of the things I was remarking to somebody lately is like, if we could like have a a 20% calling, let's just take the 10% fringe opinions on each side and say, nope, you don't get to talk about this anymore. Obviously, there's no way to actually do this. But if we're going to say, like, you guys are completely off the deep end. We're going to give you guys your own corner over there. You go battle it out. The 80% of us that aren't being extreme are going to like talk about it, figure out what the problem actually is, and solve something. And one of the things that, that I talk about a lot is that negative judgment has the highest standards of evidence. If someone wants to assert their own side, I mean, you don't need much more than an opinion to assert your own side. But when you're going sure. to judge someone negatively, okay, I, I want to know, like, okay, how do you arrive at that? And the more extreme the negative judgment, the more sure we want to be. Now, when you think about it in terms of, like, the law, if we're trying someone for a capital crime, do we just want a bunch of people's opinion that, well, I think he's guilty. Well, he looks guilty. Well, I saw him do this thing, and I know he's a bad person. Execute him. Execute him. That's not the way we do things. We have the highest standards of evidence. Sure, we we don't want to be executing people who have a reasonable mm-hmm. chance of actually not being uh, murderers. Yep. And then when you look at criminal law, that if we're going to imprison you, we have you know beyond a reasonable doubt. 
if we're going to like fine you in civil court, we, we want evidence to show that, yeah, you owe the money. And when we like if we want to get someone fired from a job, well, we want to have some actual evidence that what they did was what we think they did. And even when it comes to negative opinions, when you think about this now, I've I've been lied about. I mean, it, and if you haven't been, you will be. Well, gee, I can't imagine a martial arts master that that goes off on his own and decides mm-hmm. to make a Christian martial art that has something of substance. I can't imagine you would offend anybody. Yeah, and, and what it essentially boils down to is the higher your profile, and it doesn't have to be very high. I mean, yeah, you, sure. you, you get three people who know who you are, and there's going to be four opinions about you. And yep. as, as that builds, some people, they're going to take some negative thing they heard, and they're going to go run with it like it's the truth. And we don't like it when someone does that to us. And yet it is stunning how often we participate in it or we even initiate it when it's not about us especially when it's about someone we don't like and Mm -hmm. and we don't need any actual evidence we just need to hear from someone who heard from someone who was told by someone who already had a negative opinion how bad someone is and and well like my ex-relationship is always a bad example it's like you know what happens if someone only hears about the person or hears about you from someone that you broke up with in a really bad ending and they just take it as gospel well we we don't like it when that happens to us and yet with stunning regularity we do it to other people and and that it violates golden rule it violates humility over power and here's the scary part to me is if I see someone do that to somebody else, I consider myself put on notice that they will do that to me. Sure. And when I see the magnitude of the negative judgment they'll jump to on someone else, I feel put on notice that at any point in time they don't like me, they're upset at me, they disagree with me, that they will do the same thing to me I'm watching them to do to somebody else. And as I was even just discussing in my scriptural uh, discussion earlier, is I said, I interpret scripture the same way I interpret everything, the same way I interpret what you say, the same way I interpret what my mother says. I give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm not looking for the opportunity to twist your words and arrive at the interpretation I can most be mad at and fight with. I'm going to look for a way to give you the benefit of the doubt. And so, and so when you're talking to me and I see you go in the Bible and the, and the main thing you want to do is fight, <laughs> but I'm assuming you're putting me on notice that you will do the same thing to me. That if, you, if you're ever upset at me, you will look for something I said and try to twist it or interpret it in a way that most justifies your existing uh, emotion and anger rather than give me the benefit of the doubt, which changes my desire and willingness to have a relationship with you. And, and, and that really kind of it stopped a lot of the discussions as, oh, I never kind of thought that I was applying a principle. Huh. I have to think about that. Well, it's interesting too. You know, people have their stated principles and their stated ideas and even their stated religions for that matter. And they are completely oblivious to the dramatic contradiction of between their stated ideals and the way they actually live their lives. I think, and that, I think that's 
pretty common for most of us have some version of that on some Mm -hmm. level, but it it does surprise me sometimes how dramatic of a noticeable a difference it is and how oblivious people are of the difference, you know, when you're the other person kind of observing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then you meet people who are fairly consistent and it takes a little while for you to realize, <laughs> oh, this person does do what they say they do. Oh, they they do actually believe and will back up their belief and et cetera. Um, as far as uh, what's what's new for you uh, or I guess because you, you're you're kind of in a interesting place in in terms of I don't you know I mean let's see other than for the first like six months of your life you lived in Hawaii you probably don't remember that I'm guessing unless you have a really good memory um, you lived in Southern California for the last you know, several decades mm-hmm. and moving forward, you're, you're sort of moving into a relatively unknown place. Um, you know, Andrea and I have some decisions to make with regards to guardian Kempo and the, our deep involvement in that. And we're coming to some, uh, some resolution, but we kind of want to test things out based on our pattern of behavior leading up to that choice. Um, your, uh, y- Rarely have you ever been in an unknown spot where you have all this, huh, what's next? Well, well, certainly, what, what are you doing right now? I mean, what's... Yeah, yeah certainly this unknown, this chaotic, um, leaving behind what I have known, walking into the unknown, what's familiar to it is I have Ohana. That I have people and I have safety nets and I have opportunities and I have people who have said they want to train, but saying you want to train generically in the abstract is one thing. If I can find a, a specific location, well, part of the question is, okay, so of the 15 of you who say you want to train, can you get to this location on this day and this time? Because then you know, stuff like that becomes an issue. Yeah. But um, I've got three silos I'm working on, and there's overlap between all three. One is um, the, the martial arts, Guardian Kembo Kajuko Do, and, and doing some work in that and with that, and, and with some luck, crafting a way to train an air. Because that's, that's the big thing I'm missing, is that generational continuity. Having someone at least a generation behind me that would be capable of learning all of it, that could then be the, the next soke, the next head of system. And somebody who wasn't old by the time they did learn all of it. Yeah, because like if, if I'm 75 <laughs> when I retire, you know, how long is a 60-year-old going to want to lead the system? Now, well, the, the 55, 60, 65-year-old masters might make a fantastic master's council to advise an up-and-coming next-generation master. But they probably don't want to carry the whole weight of this thing on their shoulders at that age you know, where you're going to spend the first five to 10 years learning the job because it's a tough job to learn. But uh, once you've got it, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, and that's just it. Like, I mean, we're talking about, you know, Andrea and I, I mean, sure, we've been with you for a long time. And, you know, but by the time we're masters, you know, you're still talking minimum another, what, seven years, something like that, before we're even at a master's rank. Mm -hmm. That's 
that's still, you know, like I'm not going to carry a whole martial <laughs> art, it, it, even assuming I was able to get to the point where I was ready. I'm like, well, that's, that's a tall order. Yeah. Being on a master's council, that's a little bit more easier of a pill to swallow. Yeah. And, and one of the things I've been also thinking about is that I actually don't need an individual inheritor because the individual inheritor is supposed to be the, the generational continuity for carrying on the physical and philosophical art into the next generation. Well, what if the physical and philosophical art is divided up between like six people on the council? Yeah. Well, I still have generational continuity. So it's stuff like that has put training people in martial arts back on the table where I was ready to continue training myself, but to retire from teaching. So teaching's back on the table. The second big silo is my ministry, uh, Quest Xeon. And I, I was ready to retire from that, but in particular, curiously enough, in the last week, week and a half, some of the theological discussions I've been having with people who, that their church burned and they're filled with questions. They really want God to be God, and they really want Jesus to be Jesus because they feel like there's an answer there, but then what they get told and what they got taught just like blew them out. And then it goes like, it's not true. It can't be true. There's no way. And, and then somehow they come across what I teach and go, wait a second. Okay. That's different. I want to know more about that because if that's who God is, and if that's who Jesus is, I might want to sign back up. That's what I thought I was signing on for at first, but I want. I want to know. More. Well, we, all I think many of us have experienced the bait and switch of, of, mm. of whatever religious structure we're used to. Yeah, and then the other, and this is the big business one, is then Ohana and teaching Ohana as a business, as a a business separate from the martial arts. So that's new for me. And then teaching then the B Ohana part, where I get into the language of emotions, and I get into the the five-step uh, letting go system, and I get into the three-step freedom system, and then the build ohana where I get into leadership for the 360-degree leadership, and I get into the Yori relationship trust matrix, and, and then to bring ohana to the world where now I'm training people in how to teach and we're up-leveling to mastery-level stuff. And, and, the, and the idea of it is very exciting. But the idea of it is exciting in the abstract because I'm just I'm learning the actual mechanics. And so it's the difference between like, oh, I really want to do that. And okay, well, tell me mm-hmm. exactly what that entails so that way I know if the price of doing that and the probability of success line up for me to decide to. And so that's where I am right now. And the the answer to a lot of those questions is based in my St. Louis Ohana. It's based in those circles that have expressed the highest enthusiasm for all of it. And you were just in my uh, Ohana Conversations class, and I have an Ohana 2.0 class coming up. And most of the Some really cool people in that class, by the way. (laughs) Yep, and most of the people in that class were based in St. Louis. Yeah. So that that's what's up I with think, me. Uh, if I if I can get that sweet spot overlap yeah. where all three of those intersect, I've got my inheritor or my inheritor masters. <laughs> well, and I think that it's it's interesting because you have um, it, it was it was 
something that I can relate to uh, on on some level is you're interested in a bunch of things, and one of the things that's been been curious to observe is the process of your finding a way to integrate and still keep separate, and that that kind of it, it, like you did it with the martial arts first. You had Guardian Kempo, and then you had your higher level principles that only you explored. You maybe shared with a handful of of your more advanced people, and then you had your you splitting out some of the basic principles. That's got to be for somebody who has an interest and a predilection for knowing a whole bunch of stuff and trying to find ways of integrating it, finding ways in which somebody could explore all of it without needing to, finding a way to teach and do and be a bunch of stuff without needing um, you kind of segmenting it out so where people can bite off as much as they're willing to chew. Mm-hmm. That's... um. I, that that's that's a daunting process for anyone and you're you're obviously you got got to get all this this, this kind of squared away but i i don't nearly have it squared away but at least i have a plan you well you're more squared away than than some i i would say well, i mean i but i guess it's a more of a comparison game with ourselves rather than necessarily with other people because we try to compare ourselves to other people going to drive ourselves crazy like when your uh, your admonition to me and andrea to not compare ourselves to you when trying to teach or, or, or uh, Sensei Eric, when he was complaining that he w- didn't have the confidence at third degree black belt that you did at six. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, for somebody else who's kind of jumping in to something daunting, do, do you have any principle level advice to, to kind of, you know, I don't know, hypothetically speaking, if somebody's starting to build a brand around a podcast or, or uh, it, you know, doing anything unique <laughs> well, well well part of the reflex is go run run don't do it don't do it but uh, but he, he, <laughs> here's the part that i really mean by that is be willing when you start to have it be an experiment try it out be willing to yeah. tinker and it's as much as we like to say things like do or do not, there is no try. Well, yes, there is a try. It's like, okay, I have a plan. Let me implement the plan, see how that works. Maybe it goes well. Maybe it goes poorly. Maybe I upgrade the plan. Maybe I upgrade the goal. Maybe I downgrade the goal. Be willing to invest an opening chunk of time. And depending what you're doing, it could be hours, days, weeks, or months. Could be after a couple of years where you're just kind of finding out and actively evaluate and actively tweak on your way, and you will get better. When you're doing a thing like a podcast, you will find your voice. You will find like the pattern that just naturally flows from you. When you teach, you will find like your way of showing up as sensei. And when you really settle into that and you're for your students, and what naturally comes bubbling out of you is, is that love and caring for them as individuals and their hope for the future and, and the skill and it's not just a job. And that that's where you begin to really find that sweet spot as you look for what aligns with your highest and best values. And another big part for me is however you brand the outside. And I've been in too many branding seminars where it's about basically what sells, what sells, what sells. Because part of it is okay. I, I also need the truth that you, you need some authenticity in yeah, there somewhere. <laughs> that the closer they get to you, the more they see the truth in your brand. That it's yeah. not a 
a logo on a web page and a slogan, that they get deeper into you and they say, wow, this is really who this person is. This isn't just, just, just a front. And then they really connect. And then the single biggest thing, and that's why you know, people remember beginnings and endings, so I want to end with this. You're not doing a thing. You're beginning a thing. You only have to be good enough to start. You don't have to be good enough to have already mastered the thing you're brand new at. And if someone's coming to me to learn martial arts, what's their rank going to be? They're going to be a white belt. Why? Because they're starting. How good do you have to be to be a white belt? When you get your black belt and, and you're teaching, how good do you have to be to be able to teach your first class? In all of the things that you're starting to remember, you only have to be as good as a beginner. And then you progress. And just be willing to be the beginner. That's deep. Easily said, but... Um, I, I think that's uh, that's significant. I mean, like like I like I've said, we could spend hours talking we, about a bunch of we, stuff. We could, after fifteen years together, if we wanted to do a year long straight podcast without signing off, we could fill the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it'd be a lot of inside baseball. Hopefully, <laughs> we've kept things broad enough that uh, nobody's kind of going. Well, I I know that they both understand that, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so th- so the intricacies of Bad Guy Three of Guardian Three, uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think uh, I, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. And and I think um, by the way, so so you do have this. I do want to make sure we put this out here because um, one of the reasons I wanted to jump and have you on it in September uh, is because you have this class coming up in October. Um, what? Uh, What's the, if somebody is listening to this for whatever reason and they kind of go, well, I'd like to learn more about this Ohana stuff and maybe I want to sign up for that course. Um, what's, uh, how can they jump in on that? Uh, well, you can email me or go to my website. The website is Scott with one T S C O T W I T H the number one. So don't spell it out, put in the number one and then the letter T.com. Or email me at scott at scottwith1t.com. And you have to spell scott with one T, S-C-O-T, at S-C-O-T-W-I-T-H, the number one, the letter T.com. And I'm sure if they get hold of you directly, you'll just send them on my way too. Yeah, and if, if, if any of you are kind of wondering, you know, go ahead and check out adventuremind.net and uh, email me there, uh, Joshua, at adventuremind.net. I'll, I'll get you in touch with, with all that info. Yep, and uh, right now, because we're... we're we still have not yet emerged from COVID. I kind of started this during the lockdowns. And at this point, like, who knows when we will have fully recovered. So I'm like giving away copies of several of my books. Uh, I think I have three, three of my books I'm just giving away to people in PDF form on my site. If, if you want to go to Amazon and, and pay money for them and so I get paid, that would be beautiful. But they're available to you for free as well as some other resources and material that is there for you. And it will... It will help make a powerful difference in how you walk things forward. So it's and it's free. So by all means, please go get it. And if you, uh, another easy way to remember an entry point is uh, Bitly. Um, 
bit.ly slash leader blind spot. And that will get you that free report and will get you to the page that has all of the free giveaways. And what's the deadline? Because you do have this course coming. What's the deadline for registration? Um, if, If someone emailed me even as late as the day of, I think the first day is Tuesday, October 6th. Okay, so we got a little bit of time because I, I think we're actually going to get this particular episode out pretty quick. So there should be at least a week or two before somebody, um, you know, we get to that point. Yep. So as so long as they reach me in time, and then we can we can get them to jump on Zoom with us for the online thing, so they can literally join in from anywhere in the world, and that's going to be on Tuesdays for six weeks, and uh, we're going to be doing it at. Let's see, I'm, I'm trying to do my time conversion because I'm going to be in central time then. I, I think I'm doing at, at one in the afternoon on Tuesdays, central time. So convert to wherever you are. Okay. And since most of us are working from home these days uh, to a significant period of time, uh, that might be more within reach than in non-COVID uh, times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... So uh, very cool. Um, like I said, we could talk about a bunch of stuff. I was just thinking it figures that you'd have, you know. Uh, uh, so I actually, I, I do kind of want to want to leave with that just a little bit. So you have this, just because I, I like flipping the script on stuff. So you have this this idea of Conway luck that I've kind of expanded out to just guardian luck mm-hmm. because you know I'm not Conway, but I've I've inherited a bunch of the, these ideals of. So I'm I'm approaching a. Probably minor, but potentially more involved uh, medical procedure in the next few months, and it just figures that you know I would have to have this in the midst of when I'm submitting my surf contest videos, as opposed to having to travel across to multiple countries and not having any control as to when I surfed. You know, it just figures that this this it would work out this way. Most people mean that in a negative way, mm-hmm. and you mean. You flip the script. It's like, well, of course it works out because this is the way it's supposed to. It worked out. Of course. It figures. Why does this always happen to me? It just somehow works (laughs) out. But if you are going to need to have this surgery, that you would have this surgery when you have the the most control. The most flexibility. The most flexibility. The most opportunity where the, the cost to your life is the smallest it's ever been. So, um, thank you, uh, very much. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say so. Okay. Cause that's what I've, I've known you as, but grandmaster Scott, uh, for, for coming on the show and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see about, uh, future connections as far as adventure mind and, and, uh, Ohana things go to in the future. But, uh, but thank you very much for being on. You are welcome. It has been a pleasure. And, and to you and your listeners, aloha. Excellent. As always, adventure is a state of mind. How you live it is up to you. Mm -hmm.